Good morning. Would you stay standing with me as we read the scripture for today's message? Today's sermon comes from Psalm chapter 77. And as the Psalms are the words of God to God's people to give back to God in worship and prayer, we do so as a body, as a people. So would you read this out loud with me as I read it? Psalm chapter 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. I ask for myself, Lord, and on behalf of my favorite people, your people, this church, I ask for your help today. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Remove the heart of flesh and replace it with a heart of, I'm sorry, remove the the heart of stone and give us a new heart of flesh, hearts that are soft and receptive to the truth that we need, Lord, as we seek to find whatever joy and comfort that we need, we desperately need in this life, Lord, I pray that you would let us see your wonder, let us see your majesty and glory in a way that we would go to know their well for clean water, we'd happily run to you and find life there in you. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. So what happened? Whatever happened to those Old Testament times. I've, I grew up in the church, and so I've spent my whole life reading the Bible. And that has been a question I've asked practically my whole life. And many of my like, Christian friends, like this, this has even been a conversation I've had many, many times. Whatever happened to the Old Testament times? What, what happened to the Bible times? Why do we think of the stories and the things that happened that we see in the Bible of the Old and New Testament days thousands of years ago, why do we see those as the Bible times, but not this as the Bible times? We see monumental, story-worthy acts of God, miracles, wonders, heroes of faith, great deeds, great, great works. Has it ever felt like it? Because it has to me. Has it ever felt like the promises and guarantees and wonders of God seemed to end a long time before we came along? Doesn't it often feel like the times of God, a God who works in fantastic and redeeming and powerful and mighty and undeniable and wonderful ways, doesn't it seem like it has come to end in the past somewhere? It feels like there's far often less wonder in this life replaced by so much woe and that woe continues to seem to just continue to mount up and mount up the the psalmist of of this of this prayer 
surely felt like that. When you honestly and plainly read what he's saying, he clearly feels like this. And I want you to know that he was feeling like this and wrote from that. And he lived in the Bible times. This is the Bible. And so the Bible isn't just about what happened, but the Bible is about what always happens. It's about not simply what God did, but what God is doing and what he will do. And in this psalm, in light of how the psalmist feels and how often we often feel, this is a psalm of lament. We call this psalm a psalm of lament. And that's a, that's a word that probably in our modern-day Christianity, modern-day society, we're, we're not necessarily all that familiar with. What is lament? Lament is how Christians grieve. Lament is how Christians grieve. This is what we do when we feel like the wonders and the works and the promises and the, the activity and the care of God has somehow ceased. It, it doesn't seem to be showing up. And what we're left with, it, with is, is woe. Lament is how we bring our sorrows to God. Lament is bringing your sorrow, bringing your desperation, bringing your heartache, whether it's been put on you or it's because of you. It, it's bringing it to God. But lament doesn't simply stop with bringing our sorrow to God. Lament, lament is literally, it's a divinely given liturgy, which leads to your mercy, which leads to wonder in God. Restoration, redemption, healing, encouragement, relief, hope. When I say liturgy, you're like, okay, you said, now you have lament, which is a little familiar with, but not so much. And then you say liturgy. Liturgy is uh, an, old, an old kind of fashioned, uh, like technical term for um, the structure of worship, the order of what we do uh, in a worship service. So our church has a liturgy, an order. And these seem to be things that God has given us that we can find in the Bible. And we go, this is how the people of God should worship him. So we'll, we'll, we'll sing songs, and there's definitely going to be prayer. And the Bible tells us that we should regularly uh, be taking communion, and the word should be opened, and, and, and it should be taught and preached, and people should be praying together and encouraging, welcoming each other with the welcome of Jesus. That's liturgy. And lament is a divinely given, God-given element a significant, necessary, liturgical element in our worship. Lament is rooted in what we experience, and it's constrained, it's, it's encapsulated and held up by what we believe. Let me, let me kind of suss that out a little bit. Lament is, is a prayer which is loaded with theology, we experience broken selves, broken mind, our, our broken heart, our broken soul, and, and the minds, hearts, and souls of other people that are broken, and an entire creation that's been subjected to futility because of sin. And our experience is full of sorrowful things. And so our prayer is loaded with theology. Christians affirm that the world is broken, and we affirm that God is powerful, and we affirm that he is faithful. And so lament stands in the gap between our pain and God's promise. It stands in the gap and bridges that so God can take us from our real pain into his real promise. Lament is a prayer that leads us through personal sorrow. It helps lead us through difficult questions into truth that anchors our soul into a place where we won't be uprooted from, from our belief, from our faith in salvation and in, in the Lord. Lament is how you live between the north and south poles of a hard life while you tr try to trust in God's sovereign control and authority and, and his love and his goodness. This, this north pole of a broken ex existence in a, in a broken creation that we all know in our heart, whether you're a Christian or not, you know it, it shouldn't be this way. Whether you believe in God or not, every human being knows it really shouldn't be this way. We live between that North Pole and a South Pole. We as Christians, this South Pole of faith 
in a saving God who has saved and is saving and will be faithful to save. And without lament, without lament, without taking up and receiving this divine gift to us, we won't know how to process pain. And we won't know how to persevere in faith. We won't stay Christians if we don't learn to find and cling to Christ's saving, redeeming, faithful work all the time. We won't stay Christians. We'll abandon God in faith. We won't, we won't persevere because in lament, we're not depending on him to preserve us. Those who aren't discipled in a gospel lament, they only, they, you only have a deconstruction of your faith to look forward to. As your pain and sorrow, as the difficulty and despair of the world around you, your sin, other people's sin, all you'll have before you is just to pull apart the pieces to try, out, try to find out what's wrong, but you'll have no way to put it all back together again. Lament helps us take our deconstructing, our deconstructed faith, and take that to God, who is the only one who can, like Humpty Dumpty, put it, put it back together again and help us to see what this brokenness is, why it's here, and what he's doing with it. One of the leading problems of the American church today, and it has been for a long time, has been its lacking in, in discipling people in suffering. I don't, I don't feel like I talk about suffering or preach or, or teach on suffering like a lot, a lot. But if, if you just picked up a handful of rocks and just kind of could throw them far enough and every rock hit a church in our community, you might be hard-pressed to find a church where suffering and lament is robustly and deeply and regularly taught and discipled because Americans, specifically American Christians, who live in comparative comfort, in comparative convenience, in comparative safety, in contrast to the rest of the world, we, we want more of that. And we didn't come to church to bear something heavy, right? Why should we talk about it more? Because you will suffer. You do suffer. You will hurt. You will go through trial. You will go through trauma. You will experience defeat. You'll experience your failure, other people's failure, and you'll experience loss. You will, and you have, and some of you are. And that's, that's not simply me exegeting just kind of life as it is, just explaining just kind of reasonably and rationally just the world as it is. No, G these are the words of Jesus himself. He says to his disciples on his last evening with them, they're having a nice dinner. He washed their feet, all right? That jerk Judas finally walked out so we can let our hair down and relax, right? The, the, the creep is out of here so we're not uncomfortable. And then Jesus gets heavy. He says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. In other translations, it would read, in this life you'll have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's a major guarantee of Jesus to his people. In this life, you will have trouble. That's true. It's Christian to tell the truth. But with that truth, Jesus packages it into a greater and superior truth, a guarantee, a promise. Take heart, receive peace, even in the storm, even as your lungs are filling with water as you drown in your trials. I want you to know I have lived and died for you so that God, my Father, will call you his and you can call him your Father. His redemption is coming for you. The redemption of all bitter, dark things and transforming them into sweet, beautiful reality. That's a promise to you. I, I've risen back to a life to assure you that nothing, not even the worst thing that could happen to you, death, not even the worst thing, can separate you from God's love 
and it can't separate you from my promises to you. What's the worst thing that could happen to you? What's the worst thing that could happen in your life? I ask this all the time. Chances are you would think of, I could die or someone I love dearly will die. I want you to know that's going to happen. That's going to happen. It's not an if. It's just a question of when and how. And my next question is, are you prepared? Do you know what to do? Because most, most of the time, it's not announced. It's not, it doesn't show up on your Google calendar. 4 p.m. today, someone you love, they have, they have an appointment with Jesus, and they'll leave you. If that's the worst thing that could happen to you, Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. So you dying or someone you love dying, that's not the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could ever happen is that you or someone you love would die and they don't know Jesus. They don't have eternal life. These promises are not for them. They did not receive them. That's the worst thing that could happen. And Jesus says, take heart, because you're mine. The worst thing in the world that could ever happen won't happen. It won't happen. Not to you. Not even death can be the worst thing that could happen. So therefore, underneath that, therefore, no, no, there's no failure, there's no defeat, there's no trial, there's no trauma, there's no pain, there's no humiliation, there's no abuse, there's no betrayal. None of it can stop you or keep you from everlasting life in peace, in shalom, in relief with Christ. That's true. Both of those things are true. In this life, you will have tribulation. True. Take heart, you have me. True. That an ongoing, deeply devoted, remembered, and continuously practiced gospel, especially a gospel that prepares us for suffering and lament, do you know what the church will produce? The church will only produce people with empty chests. No guts, no heart. People who are made of paper-thin faith. Spirits that are made of glass. Heart homes made of gasoline-soaked balsa wood. That when a fiery trial, no matter if it's a spark or a forest fire, the home of your heart that the spirit is supposed to dwell in just bursts into flames. And there's no place for God in your heart. Minds filled with flimsy, plastic truths that barely, glancingly, might come from God's word. Satan, sin, and suffering will stand tall and powerful, and it, they will ravage those Christians who have no gospel that is strong and mighty enough to overcome those things and keep you with God. It's a house built on sand, and when that storm of suffering, of woe, this is why we need to receive the gift, the divinely given liturgy of worshiping God with our lament, bringing our suffering and our sorrow to God. The big idea here for today, and, and I rarely bring this and then go, I wish I could say it like five different ways. That's the, probably the one thing in every sermon that I know how I want to say it, right? And that's, that's just everything else in the sermon, I do say five different ways. That's, that's why you're here through brunch, Okay. But here, I'll lay it before your feet. God works our woe into wonder. Through lament, I might add. God works our woe into wonder. It seems God has chosen to reveal his saving and his glorious, joy-establishing work through dark, painful, sad things. Dangerous, hard things. Things, deep, dangerous, drowning waters. That is how he has chosen to reveal his glory. We worship our God because he's a saving God. Which means we need saving. And the minute we forget what we needed and what we need saving from, we no, we no longer really worship him in truth. As long as it's all candies and blankets and naps. And that's our religion. And I'm too blessed to be stressed. Man, 
We won't worship him as he has intended to be worshiped and seen. As a saving God, which means there's danger, there's death, there's destruction, there's darkness, there's sadness. We worship him because he's a saving God. It shouldn't, though it does surprise us, that we will and we do face terribly painful things in this life. There's a moment in the New Testament where one of the writers just goes, hey, don't, don't lose your mind when the fiery trial shows up. Don't be surprised. Why are you surprised? Dark times, the darkest, they stand in, dark, in stark, God-glorifying contrast to the great and incredible dawning of the Son of God over the horizon as he brings redemption and healing and rescue and salvation. See, God's glory isn't displayed by everything working out as it should. It's more wonderfully worked out in the midst of things not being like they ought to. So he lets those things, he lets those people have their moment on purpose because he wants to show you his glory. He wants to show you and give to you joy, which you won't understand and you won't feel the beautiful weight of that unless you've recognized the, the dark and terrible and ugly, ugly weight of what it is to be without him. Men oppose God and his people. A fallen creation cries out in turmoil and destruction and threat. The fallen world has its opportunity to break, to poison, to murder, and die. And then God shows his work. That's how he shows his glory. And it's not that God wasn't or isn't at work while the darkness has gathered and, and the drowning water, waters have gathered and, and armies of opposition and threat, chariots and horses and arrows and sword bear down on us. It's that he was and is at work in those things. He's gathered them. He raised them up for the expressed purpose of showing his great might and his good on your behalf. Whoa, he raised them up? No, God doesn't do mean things. No, God doesn't do mean things. But God raises up wickedness. God is not evil. He's not sinful, but he raises up sinful and wicked people. You can go read Romans 9, in which the Apostle Paul says, essentially God says, uh, for the very purpose of my glory, I raised up Pharaoh who hated me. His heart was hardened against me. He persecuted me, opposed me, disobeyed me, and he persecuted, enslaved, and murdered my people. And I made him, I am the king of kings. I raised him up. I made it so he's the mightiest king of the mightiest nation on earth. And I put the weakest, smallest, most humble people, a little tiny tribe of nobodies, I put them into his slavery so that I could put my, dis, my, on, my honor and my dignity and my glory and power on display. I raised him up so that I could crush him and show the world who has the power, who has the glory, whose hand is mighty not only to crush and condemn, but also to save and rescue. In this first section of this Psalm 77, there's three big sections. There's three big sections. I want to take you through it real quick. The, the first section, that's lament. That's verses one through five. I cry aloud to God. I cry aloud to God. How? Aloud, I said. Aloud. I'm making a scene. I'm making a problem. If someone doesn't understand or they're not with me in it, then I'm, I'm, probably, I'm probably wigging them out. I'm probably making them a little nervous. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out. Without, I'm all, up all night. I can't sleep. And my soul refuses to be comforted. Doesn't matter the text messages you're sending me. Tell me to listen to this worship song or that worship song. Thank you. That's helpful, but it's not working. No matter what I eat or drink, whatever I take, whatever I try to do, I just, my soul, I can't be comforted. And when I think about God, I moan. I don't even have words now. I just moan because I'm looking at my experience, my failure, my sin, my shame, or the sin of others on me, or my simply, not my sin, but my, I simply failed, like I wasn't enough. Or I look at the society or the culture or the world or the dark forces that gather 
and all the loss I've suffered or the loss that someone I love has suffered and I can do nothing about it. I, all I can do is moan. I'm thinking of you, God, and I just moan. I try to meditate. My spirit faints. Remember last week, this, this guy doesn't even feel like he can pray. His not praying is praying. He's just being with the Lord, and he doesn't have the words. And thankfully, again, once again, in the greatest book of the Bible, Romans, Romans chapter 8, the assurance and promise of God is that even when all you have are groans and moanings and you are wordless, you have the Spirit of God who loves you, and he translates perfectly the deep longings of your heart. And God, your Father, understands what you feel and say when you don't know how to say it. That section one, lament. I call this restless faith. He's got faith. He's going to God. He's worshiping God. But it's restless. It's weak. And then there's a second section. There's a really important thing that happens. It, it happens in verse six and verse seven. You see, he says, I, I was weary. I'm paralyzed. I'm broken. Uh, I'm, I'm wordless. I'm, I'm full of moans. But then something happens in verse six. Maybe it's somewhere in the night. Maybe it's somewhere at two in the morning, four in the morning, six in the morning. But something starts to happen in his heart and mind. In verse six, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Do you know who he's talking to? God. I thought of you, I remembered you, and I moaned my spirit's fainting when I try to meditate on you. Verse 4, you, you hold my eyelids open. You're keeping me awake. I'm, I'm troubled. I can't even speak. But I consider the days of old, the years long ago, the Bible times when you seemed to act. And it's not working. So what's my prayer? In this transition, what's my prayer? The, psalm, the psalmist says, please let me remember my song in the night. Please let me meditate in my heart. Let it happen. Would you do in me? I I just, I, I'm not mustering it up. I don't have it in the tank. Can you do for me what I can't do so I can get to you, so I can get you? Let me remember what I believe. Let me remember what I know. See, I've seen and expressed and felt what is so terribly dark and painful, and it's true. And I've, let, I've been letting reality talk to me. And now I need to talk to me, but I don't have the words to preach to my own heart. So would you remind me, would you help me remember, remember the song that I have in my heart for how good you are, how faithful you are? Because I can't, I can't even hear the melody. I need to preach to myself. And then in verse 7, there's a set of questions, a series of questions. And in a blue reading, a blue reading of this psalm, apart from from hope in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, these questions are authentic. Look at these questions. They seem authentic. This seems like my reality now. I want you to know the ancient Hebrews didn't have rhetorical questions. So when you see a rhetorical question in the Old Testament, that, that's, a, that's a way of translating it into our modern English way of speaking. He's asking rhetorical questions. Back then, in the ancient Hebrew, you would have simply seen these as statements. The Lord will spurn me forever. He'll never again be favorable. For us, we read that. Is the Lord going to spurn me forever? Never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has, has God somehow forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion those are the numbers you have to deal with. That's, that's the numbers you've got to do the math with. And the right side of that equation, in a blue reading apart from Christ, what's on the right side of the equation? The answer is yeah. Yep. He hasn't forgotten though, but he has spurned you. He has no graciousness for you. There is no redemption for you. Not only are his promises at an end, there is no promise for you. But because of the gospel and receiving Jesus to stand in for us before God, now we're included. And these authentic questions that seem to describe my reality, they now become rhetorical questions. The numbers don't change. 
The numbers that the psalmist and we have to work with, it's, we still got to do math, and the numbers are, they've left me, they've rejected me, they've abandoned me, I failed yet again, I wasn't enough, I wasn't there on time, I sinned yet again, I really screwed up, I have so much to learn, I don't feel like I'm learning, the threat never ends, relief doesn't seem to be on the way, I see no sign of it letting up, they're sick, they're dying, they're dead, I'm sick, or I'm growing older, and I'm facing death. Those numbers haven't changed. But the question now changes from, this seems to describe my reality, to this speaks to my reality. Because in this rhetorical question, the gospel changes these from authentic questions that seem to describe, it changes into rhetorical questions where now he's asking these questions, but he's asking himself, he's preaching to himself. Come on, man. You really think the Lord's going to spurn you forever? You really think he's never again going to be favorable to you? Come on. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Is that what you're thinking? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious to you? Has he, does he have anger and he's shutting up his compassion? Numbers don't change, but the right side of the equation changes. And it's not because of the math you're doing, but it's because of the math of the gospel that says, no, and I needed to be asked those questions. I had to bring those questions to God. Have you forgotten me? And a loving, as a loving father, he loves you and looks at you, Father, and he goes, have I? Have your promises ceased? You said you promised and you'd, you'd always be faithful. It didn't feel like it. I know. Am I faithful? Am I still here? And his kid is going to look at him and trust him and go, yeah, you're faithful. Yeah. I'm going to choose to go and give supremacy to what I know in faith over what I feel in frailty. Verse 7. Here, here it is. I, my meditating on and remembering what you know in faith about God, the numbers don't change. But the, the right side of the equation becomes different. And that's because of Jesus and his gospel. That third section is from verse 8 to the end. He's got conviction now. It's being stirred up. Did he stir up his conviction? No. And yet conviction is stirred. Please let me remember my song. Please re let me remember. I'm trying to meditate, but I can't, I can't think. You've got to do something to me. I'm going to keep on meditating. Please do something to my mind and my heart here. And now with conviction, as he's brought his lament to the Lord, he asks to trade his emotional and mental bandwidth for confident, encouraging remembrance. This is reassured faith now. His faith is being reassured. I'm going to recall, I'm going to review, I'm going to remember who you are, I'm going to remember what you've done, and I'm going to keep sailing. I'm going to leave my lament and sorrow at your feet, and then I'm going to just stop. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to do. And I don't know if you're going to change my heart in the next moment so I can pray, so I can find relief. And I don't know if you're going to keep me up for another four hours. I don't know if you're going to, I don't know if you're going to let me stay in this spot for the next three days. I don't know but I'll say la. I'm going to stop. And as I remember you, I'm going to stop. I'm going to think. Because I had to let the world and my experience talk to me. And they had their turn. And now I've preached to myself what I know about you. And now it's your turn to talk to me. Now it's your turn. You get the final word. Talk to me in my meditations. Remind me. This is not me reminding myself. I need you to enter my mind and bring to me 
what I have heard and what I have known and either I have forgotten or I simply don't remember how to feel it is true. Now it's time for you to talk to me. Please talk to me. I want you to think of Moses at the edge of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14 because 8 through 20 in this verse of Psalm 77, but specifically verses 16 through 20, it, it appears to reference that. Here's what I want you to think of. Um, Moses is the man that God has chosen to be the shepherd of God's people, Israel. They're in slavery in Egypt (coughs) under (coughs) Pharaoh, the most powerful king the world had ever ever known up to that point over the most powerful nation, Egypt, that the world has ever seen up to that point, and no one could oppose them. Everyone else paid obeisance and, and tithes and offerings to Egypt and Pharaoh. And God sent an 80 year old shepherd who stuttered back to Egypt to have a conference with the mighty Pharaoh and say, you have God's people, and he says to let him go. And this Pharaoh, who is a god himself, in the state religion, he is a god, and his nation has many gods. He says, who is this god that I should obey him? And then God spends about 10 plagues answering Pharaoh's question oh, who is this God that you should obey me? Oh, I'm greater than this God, and I'm greater than that God, and I'm greater than that God, and I'm greater than you. In fact, I'm the God over life and death. I'm the one you should listen to. I'm the only one. And so finally, in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh relents, and he, he just about thrusts the Israelites out of Egypt because he's tired of having his great nation wrecked by this invisible God he's never heard of before. I'm not keeping you... Leak out of here, right? And as God's people are celebrating liberation, freedom, ah, God was faithful. He said we'd free us. And here we are, and we're marching out of Egypt to, to a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey that he promised that we would live in. And they come to the edge of a large body of water. It's the Red Sea. As they get there, here's the circumstance. They face a sea that they can't cross. They don't have boats. They can't build barges. They have animals and and and. and possessions, and old people, and young people, and babies, they just, and, and they, they won't make it walking around it, or it'll take a real long time, and they can't swim in it, they can't cross, they'll die, and then behind them on the horizon, there's a dust cloud, and you, they, you can feel through the, they could feel through their feet in the ground, the rumbling of what clearly is, this, is, is the feeling of chariots and horses, and on the horizon, gleaming swords, Gleaming spears, gleaming shields. Pharaoh has decided, you know what? No, I'll let him go, but I don't want him back. I'm going to go out there and kill him. Out, out of the frying pan and into the fire is what the people of God felt. And they're facing certain death that they try to jump in the water because they'll drown. And they're facing certain death if they turn to face the chariots because they'll be run over, trampled, and stabbed and killed. And Moses, here at the shores of the Red Sea, he has this guarantee of the promised land for the people of God. And by the way, this promised land isn't simply, it's not simply the guarantee that God gives that you'll be liberated from slavery in Egypt. God's promise is not simply that you'll be liberated from sin. It's not simply the promise that you won't go to hell. It's a greater promise than that. It's also a safe and flourishing life in a land of promise, flowing with milk and honey, It's the promise that you will enter into a reality of what the Hebrews call shalom, peace, in a world where nothing is and works the way it ought to. Now it does. Everything and everyone does. Everything's finally right. And between the waters and the chariots, they face now certain death. Has God forgotten us this quickly? Has he taken away his grace? Did we do something wrong? Is he angry at us? He's not going to show us compassion? Why did he take us out of the land to bring us here? Why? We could have just died in long lives of slavery rather than die here at the shores of the sea. I want you to imagine two types of men standing on Moses' right and left. I want you to imagine two, two men. One, 
One guy on Moses' right hand says, hey, Moses, we need to drop everything we have, and we need to go fight the chariots. We're the people of God. A couple of us got some swords. Some people got some knives. I know a few guys, they've been forward-thinking, and they've been stocking up on their AR-15s. They got some magazines. They were ready for the day. They were prepared, right? We need to go. We need to stand. We can't just let them run over us. We can't just let them run over us. We're God's people. We got to step up and fight. Tell the, tell the women folk to put a stern face on and give a sharp stick to all the kids. They're going to be stabbing shins. We're going to go down fighting. And the other guy on Moses' left says, Moses, we got to drop everything. We got to tell the people to swim across the water. Get everything that's made of wood and, and tie ropes around. We got, we got, look, forget the animals. Forget the stuff. Forget all the stuff that God promised that he would give us, all the gold and treasure that the Egyptians would send us away. Forget all that. We got to get in the water. We got to try and run away. And I want you to imagine in that moment, Moses going, no, no. But those are our only choices. A vote, for, a vote for this is a vote against that, and a vote for that is a vote against this. You're wasting your vote. You're wasting your opportunity. And Moses goes, no, we're not going to do either of those things. I'm going to talk to God. I'm going to lament. I'm going to bring in my fear. I'm going to bring in my questions. Hey, did you forget about us? Why did you bring us out here to do? What, what, what's going on? I don't understand. That's what I'm going to do. Well, that's not a good leader. We got to do something. We have to step up and fight. We got to do something. And we got to get up and run away. We got to get out of this trouble. And he says, nope. I'm going to take this to God. I'm going to pray and ask him to do something. And here's the truth. We're dead no matter what we do. And here's the greater truth. Take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. We're alive because of what God has done and will do. And even if the chariot shows up and I'm under its wheels, or even if a wave of the water comes up onto shore and drags me back in and under, this same Jesus, he says, though you die, yet you'll live. Everyone who believes in me will never die. The worst in the world will not happen. What you used to think is the, in the, is the worst thing in the world, that'll happen. But it's no longer the worst thing in the world. Death is no longer your final enemy. Death is now a butler who serves you. Politely comes and takes you and says, I'm here to take you into the presence of the master. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Right this way, please, sir. Right this way, please, ma'am. With lament, with sorrow, with danger, with trauma... Here's the deal. Christians are the ones who are supposed to tell the truth. We're supposed to be the ones who tell the truth. We're supposed to tell the truth about the bad. And we're supposed to tell the truth about the good. We're not supposed to lie, even well-intentioned, encouraging-sounding lies. Lament is the practice of privately and collectively, as a person of God and as a people of God, to tell the truth to God in worship. It means telling the truth of the bad that we are experiencing and then telling him the truth or asking him to help us, please help me to tell you the truth of the good God that I believe in too. It's the practice of bringing what is bitter to him, trusting that he transforms all bitter things into sweet things. God is the one who works our woe into wonder. And he uses lament. It's a gift to bring our sorrow, our dissatisfaction, our fear, our humiliation, our desperation, our hopelessness, our helplessness, taking him and tell the truth. And there's a non-gospel way, there's a non-Christian way to lament. Again, much like the right hand and the left, left hand guy, the, the guy who wants to fight and the guy who wants to flee, I, I'll, I'll give you those two categories fully, more, a little more fully fleshed out. There's non-gospel lament, which means there are two extreme lamenting strategies that we human beings tend to employ. The first is faithlessly fighting. That's the guy on the right, faithlessly fighting. It's the refusal to lament or to even tell the truth of what is sad and sorrowful in your reality. Like a good old-fashioned British person, just got to keep a stiff upper lip. Got to put a brave face on right now. It's time to be, stu it's time to be tough. Often, often that person will avoid telling the truth and facing the truth of their trauma, or their trial, their desperation, what's sad, what's scary. They, they'll deny it. And one of the ways that 
you'll do it is to go, well, it's not all that bad. It could be worse. Well, yeah, it could be. But it's as bad as it is. And you aren't facing that. Well, someone else has it way worse than me. I'm not going to be a wimp. I'm going to have faith in God. I'm not going to spend my time, anytime, wasting tears. I, don't, I got more faith than that. I'm going to trust in God. Who has time for crying? And, no, I trust God. Other people have it worse than me. You're the idiot in the woods who's been bitten by a snake. Help arise and you go, save your medicine for someone who needs it. I'm just going to flex and squeeze it out of my body because I'm, I'm like John Wayne. I'm a Sylvester Stallone spiritually. I'm a stoic kind of guy. I'll let God know when it's really serious. And it doesn't matter if someone else has it worse than you. Because, yeah, they're in mild, deep water, and they could drown in that. And you're like, well, I'm only in six inches of water. You can drown in six inches of water. You'll be just as drowned and dead as anyone else. It doesn't matter that someone else has it worse than you. That often, by the way, I, I come to hear and find often that that's why some of, some of us don't speak up or reach out either in community group or on the phone or text message or ask someone to, to, to listen to us because I don't want to be a whiner. I don't want to be a complainer. Other people have it way worse. Pastor Matt, is, he's probably dealing with someone with way worse than uh, Stuart or Christian or, or, or Katie or, or, or Erica. Or the, they're probably dealing with it. I'm not going to burden it. This is nothing, really. It's not compared to that. You need to tell the truth. You grin and bear it. You put your shoulder down. You push through with the will to better yourself, the will to better your situation. Some, or in the very least, some like nihilistic, like silly belief that you're some sort of Viking, that you'll go down swinging, smiling in the face of death as you mock it. It's silly. It's foolish. And you're robbing God of the opportunity. You're robbing God of the very thing he wishes to do, which is to save you, to comfort you, to show you his might and his glory and his goodness. But you'd rather supply your own. The other person, the one on the left, this is the faithlessly fractured. This is the faithlessly fractured. Where you hand yourself over to your sorrow to your lament, and you become defined by it. Now your trauma is your identity. Now your trauma is your identity. I am the abused. I am the victim. I am the crippled. I am the failure. I am the drunk. I am the pervert. I am the lazy person. I am the disorganized person. I am the rejected. My trauma now defines me. That's my whole experience. And now God's not at the center of your reality in your life, but your pain is. And that's what your whole life revolves around because that's your identity. And I see this a lot, and I'm try, I, I, I personally, I'm just confessing something, all right? Hopefully that's a safe place for me to do this. I often, so often, looking on like, like Facebook or social media, and I see people trying to work things like this out, and I judge really way too easily even though sometimes I'm probably right, but I judge them. I'm trying to repent of that, and I'm asking the Lord to give me a soft and kind, sensitive, empathetic, sympathetic heart. But often what you'll see people publicly proclaiming as a strategy to try to deal with what is hard and difficult, you'll see people who discover some, some identity in their neuro, neurodivergence or their mental or psychological or emotional challenges. And it's true that they do have that thing. But they don't know what to do with it. And if they face it as a truly hard or difficult thing or a sad thing, it'll crush them, it'll drown them. So I'll make it an identity. I'll try to redeem it myself. Now I'm some sort of unicorn. I'm part of a tribe of traumatized people. I've got my own community. Which that sort of community can be a gift from God. Except when that community, there's never any exodus out of the trauma. There's never any exodus out of the identity. That's my life from now on. 
and all the promises of God to me, that not only will he rescue me out and into eternal life, he, that he could rescue or relieve or exodus me forward in this life, either those promises aren't for me or they're not good enough for me because this is where I, stay. I finally feel like I've got an identity. They've gone to the Red Sea. I'm not going to fight it. I'll just embrace it. I'll get in and I'll drown. I'll just go under the waters and this is where I'll exist. Consigning yourself to the waters of the Red Sea. Despair, failure, defeat, loneliness, isolation, no hope. Or gathering to yourself some sort of identity that's not yours in Christ. And neither of these people, neither of these people lament. Neither of these people practice a gospel lament. They don't take their woe to God and receive wonder in his works, faith and trust in his works. The first type is counting on their works to be mighty enough, and they're not. And the second type doesn't think God's wondrous works, as I said, are either good enough for them or that they're, they apply to me because I'm one of those special types that so other people get relief, other people get redemption, other people get res- rescued, they other, other people get reconciliation, other people get healed. But I don't think it's happened yet. I, I don't think it's going to happen. This is just me. The psalmist is doing what both of these people wish they could do, and they're trying to do it. Because both those people aren't stupid morons with no faith in God, and they're idiots. That's not, that's not the picture being painted here. They want to do a thing, and this is, this is our attempt. These are the two extremes of what we attempt to do apart from God when we don't remember the gospel. We don't put it into practice, right? We don't believe it and live that belief out. This is what we do. And we're trying to do what we ought to do. And the psalmist here, he's showing us how God intends for it to look. He does it righteously in faith by going to God. Here's what the stiff upper lip guy needs to do. He, you do need bravery and you do need toughness and you do need courage because in your trauma, in your suffering, in your sorrow, in your loss, you do have to get up in the morning and wash your face. And you do have to do the dishes. You gotta go to work. You gotta get up and breathe again and move forward in your life. You do need courage. You do need toughness. You do need stability and sturdiness. And so you lament, God, I can't overcome the chariots. Tomorrow is way too strong and it's got way too many arrows. I can't face that in the morning, but you can and you stand before me. You go ever before me. You have gone before me. You are before me and I believe you will always stay there because you love me. And so all the strength I need, even if I feel like an infant, I'm trusting that I'll have the strength I need because it comes from you. And I won't have more strength than I need. I know I won't have less strength than I'll need. You'll fight. You'll fight. And I'll get victory. How and when, in whatever way, that you see fit, Lord. And with the person whose identity has been made of their trauma that they need. They need lament. They need grief. They have, it has to be engaged. It has to be handled. I just can't move forward in my life and just leave this mess here. I'm going to get up every morning. And, and the more I get a rag and put clean, cleanser on it, the more I wipe it up, the further and deeper into the carpet I'm just like mushing it. I need it dealt with. And so the gospel lament for this type of person is, I am broken, I am woeful, I am low, but God, because you love me, because you cleanse me, because you comfort me, because you'll never leave me. You'll never reject me. You'll always remember me. I'm gonna trust that you'll heal me, I'm gonna trust that you'll save me, I'm gonna trust that you love me, and you won't abandon my soul to Sheol. And I'm gonna get up and live my life. See, God works our woes into wonder. And he's given us lament as a divine gift to us. The pathway toward our praise, our peace. Here's what I think we should do for applications. Number one, pray your pain. You look at that first section 
And you follow the example of the psalmist. You follow the example of Jesus, who himself puts this on display in the, in, in the Gospels, but the, the Psalms, they're all Jesus' words before they're anyone else's words. Verses one through six, you, you pray your pain. Tell God, tell the truth. Tell the truth. And you can just go to disabuse yourself of this notion that God will look at you like you're spoiled or faithless or ignorant or wee stupid little baby that he's displeased with because you don't have very much faith. Disabuse yourself of that notion. You pray your pain. You tell God the truth. Number two, you pray your questions. Verses seven through nine. You're allowed to ask God questions, even questions that sound questioning, that maybe are questioning. They still need asked. And the only person who can handle those things fully and totally is God. Always with the question. See, your, fa- your father in heaven is a way better father than I am here on earth. Oh, the questions. Ask again and see what finds out. Your father in heaven's like, he's not like that. You pray your questions and ask God to show you what's true. But I know I've heard this a million times. He's tired of repeating himself. He's not tired of repeating himself because every time God tells you the truth and reminds you and repeats the truth about himself to you for your joy and salvation rescue, he's glorified. He loves his glory and dignity and honor. And so he does not get tired of telling you how great and wonderful and trustworthy he is. So make him repeat it by asking. Number three, pray the gospel. That's verses 10 through 20. Salvation. That's Moses at the Red Sea, verses 16 through 20. When the water saw you, O God, when the waters, the Red Sea, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. And when your mighty thunders and your mighty hand reached out, parted. And there's a way through death. And there's a way through trauma. And there's a way through suffering. And there's a way through, not out of it and avoiding it, but through it with him. So you pray the gospel in your lament and your sorrow. And you express the truth that you know that supersedes the experience that you feel. Lament is a divinely given element of our worship liturgy and it leads us to God's mercy. It's the pathway and pattern of our praise. Number four, pray with God's people. The Psalms are the worshiping prayers of God's people. And they are Jesus' words that are given to us. And they speak not just to us, but they speak for us. And these are given to us as God's worshiping people. So we trust God in our sorrow together. Our lament is not only personal, but it's corporate. And we bring it as an offering to God. We bring him our woe as an act of worship, trusting that he'll trade it in for wonder. We bring him our helplessness, trusting that he'll exchange it for hope. That's why you need to be part of a community group. That's why you need to be part of some sort of gospel community of believers with deep, real relationships. Something that maybe even starts with some given night of the week, but it extends past that into a place where there's not really boundaries, there's no starting or beginning. This is just life together with these people. That's why you need it. And for those who go, well, I'm getting through life, it's okay. I just need help every now and then. I'll come to church, you know, but community, I mean, life is really busy. You've got to get the kids to, to, to this practice and that event and that thing, and I'm working, and, you know, we just had a really hard day. I just feel like we're not... You've been bitten by a snake. Save your medicine for someone who needs it. At best, it's foolish. At worst, it's sinful. Because you have sorrow, you have lament, you have need. And how we bring it to God is we also bring it to God's people. So God's people can bring to us the very truth. Sometimes that conviction and belief in the, in the gospel isn't something that simply happens privately in solitude, in the middle of the night, in your own home, as you pray. Often the Lord deploys that to you when you're sitting weeping on the couch with someone who loves you and they have their arm wrapped around you and they've prayed with you and they're weeping with you. And they haven't opened the Bible and started preaching to you yet. They just pray for you. And they ask on your behalf with strength that you don't have, but strength God has given them. They pray for you. And then conviction and belief and restoration starts to spring up in you. That's why when we get together as people here at this church, we have uh, uh, prayer time rule 1A and prayer time rule 1B. 
Someone says, I have a need, I have a problem, I have a thing. Rule 1A is shut up, everyone. No one try to fix, no one try to counsel, no one give any advice. Oh, do you know this doctor? Hey, let me text you like the, the number to my doctor because he's really great, right? Huh. We pray. We take it to the Lord because it's his name that we trust in. And then prayer time, rule number, we, uh, rule number 1B with gospel faith and the spiritual gifts that God gives to us and, and, and the opportunities the Lord gives us. Then we see what the Lord has to offer those who are lamenting and he's put in our hands to give. Then. I want to end this kind of letting some, some of us off the hook a bit because I can't help it. There's no way, there's no possible way for any, anyone to stand up and preach and teach and have everything perfectly, properly understood because I'm imperfect and you're listening and you're imperfect. So there are a bunch of things that I didn't say, but I hope you didn't hear. Is that lament, lament may manifest in seasons, potentially years. Sorrow may be a bedfellow the Lord has given you for a while. And it's not a curse. It's a gift. It doesn't mean necessarily that you're sinfully lamenting. Because the loss of that loved one or the abuse that you suffered, and though they're not in your life, perhaps, the abuse is still there on you. And you're going to carry it probably for a long time. I want you to know that even in that, the Lord has touched your hip like he does for Jacob in the Old Testament. He breaks his hip on purpose. Why? Because he's ticked at Jacob? Because he didn't let, no. Because Jacob's arrogant and strong and he needs to know just how much he needs God. And so as an act of love, Christ touches his hip out of sock. Jacob walks with a limp for the rest of his life. Oh, you're going to do great things. I'm going to do great things through you. But I love you. I, I, can't let, I can't let you go sprinting through this life doing great things because then you'll think the power is you. You'll think the strength is you. And then you'll go to hell because you don't love me and worship me. You honor yourself. I love you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you limp your whole life when I know you want to run. And perhaps as an act of love, God means to serve and love you with a limp either for some time or for a long time. And he means to use that limp to teach you the, to walk the rest of your life leaning on him, which is the strength of God and the manifestation of his glory that demonstrates his glory to you and other people so that maybe other people with a limp who need Jesus, you'll be the one who walks at the right kind of speed with them that they need. But make sure you limp. Get up and limp. Move forward in your life. Don't just die spiritually in that spot and just cover dirt over yourself. Set aside ministry. Set aside use of your life. Set aside discipling or being discipled, following Jesus. You might have been temporarily paralyzed, but Jesus does heal you. And you may walk like Jacob, but you can walk. You can go. It's a gift, this lament. Let people lament. Don't try to fast forward or help people, force people, skip through the stuff of James chapter 1, verse 2, 4, 5. Because God's doing something with that lament. Don't cry, it's okay. Let me read you a Bible verse. Put on a happy face. This, this should be like a 30-minute 1990s sitcom where the problem is introduced, and now we get the solution, and in 30 minutes, after a few commercials, everything's okay, and we're ready for the next episode. Let people lament, because God is doing something in the midst of that. Let people lament. Lament with them. And, and show one another the gospel of God. Tell the truth of the bad. Let people tell the truth so that we can also tell the truth of the good, which is lament. And, and we, you may very well see, you may end up the testimony, glorious testimony, that God does indeed turn your woe into wonder. I, I want to take a couple seconds here. I'm done preaching. Just for us here, I want to offer you something that we don't often do. It's a little out of the ordinary for us. Blake's going to come up. He'll have just some quiet music in the background. I want us to offer, offer, offer an opportunity. You can stay in your seat if you wish. But I want to offer an opportunity. What, what old tradition, traditional churches, right? Maybe Baptists would go, well, here's an altar call. Why don't you come forward? 
There's nothing magical or, or, or special about this spot up at the stage, but sometimes that act can help us think and put our minds and hearts in a place that might be difficult to, to be in, especially sitting in these chairs for so long under the word today. I want to offer you the opportunity to come up and pray and lament, to do some work with the Lord and lament and tell him the truth, maybe, maybe a truth you've told him a million times or a truth you, you just have not until today really engaged with. And tell him the truth and ask him to tell you the truth that you need to tell yourself of his gospel, of his love, of his wonder, of redemption, of real rescue, of exodus. And if you need to be prayed over, you can come get me. I'll ask Stuart, who's in here, uh, and can I ask you, Jeremy? Can I ask you, Steve? Would you guys be willing to? Once you're done lamenting, if you need to. But if, if you want to be prayed for, you can come definitely to those guys or go to someone you trust and love and you can be prayed for. Just want to give us a few moments to sit in that and then, uh, and then we'll take communion. We'll take our lament and end it with communion. All right? So as I pray, if you want to come up, please come up. If no one comes up, that's okay. I just want to give that space to us, all right? Lord, I do ask that you would move in your people today. Free and liberate rescue make us brave in the gospel in faith but that we would faithfully fight not faithlessly fight Lord as people come forward there are those who have been fighting faithlessly and there have been people who have been faithlessly feeble and fractured and they've just had an identity that isn't redemption that isn't a beloved of, of Christ Jesus. But instead of taking their woe and receiving wonder, they just have their woe and they're tempted to wallow in it and stay in it. Lord, I pray, even with a limp, that you would bring those folks to you this morning in great liberation and great comfort and great confidence that you would use lament in our lives as a way to bring joy and comfort and rescue and to, and to show your glory to us. Lord, I now pray over those folks as they come up. If you want to come up, just give a few moments. If you want me to come and pray with you silently for a moment, you just wave at me.